It's good to see you, New Life Church. Would you please join me as we pray? Lord, great God and Father, would you use our view into your word this morning to deliver us from the sugar of sin as well as its gall? Would you help us to have enough light to see our darkness, enough sensibility to feel the hardness of our hearts, that we might respond in faith and in hope and in love to you. And so God, I ask for your grace for uh, the delivery of this message as well as its reception. Father, would you be pleased to show your love to your people through your word today. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we are beginning our study of the book of James. It's a a book near the end of your New Testament. If you want to turn there, uh, you can. But uh, I think the first thing I need to say is why are we studying the book of James? Why would we try and look at this short little book? Uh, We're going to do it throughout the fall. And what is it about James that we need now? We're going to study the book of James for several reasons. One is it has a great opening line. The opening line says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. All of us have been enduring a global trial as well as our own individual trials And so how to handle these trials is of utmost importance to us. Another reason, James has a lot to say about how we speak. How we speak to one another, I think. How we type to one another. What we put on our social media profiles. You see, as you may have witnessed the other night in the presidential debate, what we say and how we say it are of utmost importance. Another thing that James has going for him is wisdom. In the book of James, wisdom is paramount. And certainly wisdom has to do with how we approach our trials. But more than that, it has to do with how we approach our life. And as God's people reflect God's wisdom the world will see more clearly their need for a Savior. In addition, there's a lot in James about financial success. And he talks about the relationship of the haves and the have-nots. Those who have riches and those who don't. And that topic, of course is part of the world in which we live as well as the world in which James lived. And then, of course, and perhaps most famously, James teaches us about the nature of true wisdom. Or excuse me, of true faith. Nothing is more important than faith because without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so James discusses at length the nature of true faith. And we're encouraged to believe 
and put our hope completely in God. So let's read the opening lines of the book of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so here in this introduction to the book of James, I want to uh, remind you uh, that your maturity and your completeness is the goal of the trouble you face. Or let me say it a different way. The affliction or the trials that you encounter will produce and must produce in you a maturity and completeness that cannot come if you don't have those trials and afflictions. You see, I don't think it's enough to say that, oh, there's a reason for everything. Everything happens for a reason. Because James here tells us the reason. And the reason for your trials is your maturity and your completeness. Now, I have to do really two things this morning. I want to convince you, certainly of that, that your maturity is dependent on your trials. But also, I want to introduce you to the book of James. And so it starts off by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And so like a typical letter in the first century, it tells us who the author is. The author is James. He claims that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most likely, this particular James, this particular servant of the Lord, is the brother of the Lord Jesus. And yet that's not what he says, because that's not what's important to him. His physical relationship with Jesus is not near as important to him as his spiritual relationship to Jesus. He claims to be the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so what we have here is a letter coming from Jerusalem to a scattered church. It's pretty clear that James was not a believer during Jesus' physical lifetime on this earth. If anybody, I suppose you could say, was born into it, it would be James. But the reality is nobody's born into faith. Everyone must come to conscious faith in Christ on their own, and James did. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 suggests that Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection. And apparently that made all the difference. And so this letter from James is a letter about how you live when you have a resurrected Lord. James was more of a preacher than he was an author. And so it's likely that this book represents a compilation of excerpts from his sermons. So what you are reading here in the book of James was sent to the people of God scattered 
throughout the ancient Near East. But even before that, it was originally given to the church in Jerusalem where James was a pastor and where Jesus had raised from the dead. This letter was most likely written early, one of the earliest letters uh, and books in the New Testament. Probably if you were to, uh, you know, cut your Bible open and, and slide the book of James in somewhere, you would put it before Acts 15, before the Jerusalem Council. And in the Jerusalem Council, there was a lot of debate about how they handle these new Gentile believers in this ancient Jewish Messiah. And so the, how, how, how does that fit together? That isn't apparently an issue in this letter. So that's part of the reason we think it happened before then. Which means that when Paul writes about faith in chapter 2, he is not writing as a reaction to the Apostle Paul's view of salvation by grace through faith. He is rather engaging the topic of faith on its own merits. The fact that this was early also tells us that the church was in a period of transition from what was a Jewish religion to what is becoming a multi-ethnic religion. And this multi-ethnic religion then is faith in the resurrected Jesus. It has as its basis, the Old Testament and the oral teachings of Jesus. You'll find that James really draws heavily from both of those sources, and that really is all the church had to go on at this time. We recognize that this letter is heavily influenced by a Jewish way of thinking, It's written to the 12 tribes in the diaspora or in the dispersion. This would have been a Jewish way of referring to the people of God. A Jewish way of talking about the church in its infancy. And so what James is doing in describing the church that way is he is importing all of the inheritance that the church has in the Old Testament as the people of God, and he's helping them figure out how do we go about living in a post-resurrection era. You may recall when we studied 1 Peter that it too was written to the churches in the dispersion. And so James starts out like 1 Peter. It's written to people in exile, people who are scattered. They're away from Jerusalem. They're away from the homeland of their faith. And so troubles were natural to them. You should expect trouble when you're far from home, where you're living in a place that is not your home. Home, it's not the place that you are most familiar with. You're going to have trouble. And so it's natural that he should start off talking about trouble. And so he does that. He starts off with trials or trouble. And he does it because he's writing to a dispersed church. And he assumes they will run in 
to problems. And so with that, we come to the body of this letter, the main part of the letter. And it begins in verse 2 where he simply says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so just that sentence drips of wisdom. If you simply assume that you will have trouble, you will be far better prepared for it than if you assume you will never have trouble. Now, even as I say that, you have to know that is completely out of step with the world in which we live. But the reality is you can't count it all joy if you don't expect trouble. If trouble is an unwelcome guest, you won't respond to it with joy. You can think of it like this. It's the difference between a burglar coming to my house and my grandchildren coming to my house. When my grandchildren come to my house, I count it all joy. And we have a great time. When a thief comes to my house, I consider him an intruder and an imposter and somebody that shouldn't be there. <laughs> you might say, well, that's a little overblown. You can't really compare suffering or welcoming suffering to unwanted suffering in the same way you compare your grandchildren to a burglar. But you see, the reality is I can. Because what changes it from being unwelcome to welcome is the intent. See, a burglar is intent on doing me harm. And I'm afraid that most of us view suffering, most of us view affliction and trouble as something that is intent on doing us harm. It is our adversary, it is against us. And I just want to suggest that on the other hand, if God is sovereign over suffering, if he is sending that suffering our way, then it is his gift and it is welcome. And it is doing something in our lives that we have to welcome with joy. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. <sighs> I wish I could just leave it there, but I can't, can I? Because for you and for me, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't speak for you. But for me, I hate trials. There you go. Just going to say it. I don't want them. I'm not, they, I don't typically welcome them. And I think they ought to go away as fast as they can. But I want you to think about this. If you were to see a butterfly struggling to escape from a cocoon, do you know what the worst thing you could do is? The worst thing you could do is go open that cocoon up and help the butterfly out. Because if you helped the butterfly out, it its body would remain puffy and its wings would remain small and it would crawl around for the rest of its life. 
Because apparently the struggle to escape the cocoon is what forces the, the, the fluid in the body of the butterfly into the wings so that the, the body uh, assumes its normal size and the wings assume their normal size and the butterfly then can take off and fly. And it's the very struggle to escape that cocoon that enables the butterfly to take off. And so, I have to ask you, should the butterfly resent the struggle? Should the butterfly consider the struggle to escape its cocoon to be joy? Is it an enemy or a friend? And so we really are faced with that same thing. Is it a friend for us when we run into trials? I mean, think about it for a moment. Think about your attitude about this. Think about the trouble that has come your way because of COVID. A few of you have gotten sick, and thankfully you have recovered. Some of you have lost jobs, and thankfully many of you have found new jobs. But for a lot of us, the trouble has been internal with our attitudes. There's a struggle to wear a mask, or even more, to know when you should. What should you expect when you go to a gathering of your friends? What should you expect when you go somewhere? Is it important for you that you follow uh, the guidance that our state has given? And so what we find is that the very simple internal dialogue we have with ourselves is a trial that we resent. I wish we didn't have to have that. And I'll bet you that most of you don't welcome that with joy. I don't. And so, if you were to step back, do you spend your time assuming that this unhappy situation you're in is going to work for your good? Or do you spend your energy finding research to support reasons you shouldn't wear a mask or reasons that this is somehow going to destroy what's uh, uh, going to destroy our future or that somehow you're otherwise being unfairly treated by our government. You see, that's how are you going to spend your time? Are you going to welcome it as a friend and count it all joy or are you going to resist it and fight it and wish it were otherwise? I have to say, there's a lot about the way that this has come and hit me and hit our church that I don't like or haven't liked. And I want to resist the, the frustration uh, about the, uh, our inability to gather in the old way with our church. And that frustration, I can, I can be frustrated by that and angry about it. But what if I considered it all joy? What if I was able to look at 
the constraints that this has placed even on our church. And I looked for how could I consider this joy? The fact that there have been 20 different people preach at our church in the last two Sundays. That's amazing. That never happens in any church. What a gift to our church. What a gift to be able to worship outdoors like we have in the past several weeks. I think there's a pretty good chance that the constraints are good for us. That we're not as dependent on going to church and having a building as we were before. That our ecclesiology or our doctrine of the church is better than it was pre-COVID. I think there's a lot about this that is good for us that will help me consider it to be joy. Oh, there are countless other things, aren't there? Notice what it says. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials or trials of many kinds. I mean, it isn't just COVID trials. It's not. It's relational trials. It's tension between people. It's an ache and a pain. It's growing old. It's traffic. It's all kinds of trials. Are you going to count it all joy when you fall into those? I, I just love it. I, I love the language. When you like fall into it. Oops. That's right. It's an accident. When you accidentally hit those trials, what are you going to do? Then I want you to, I want you to see what he said, right? When you plop, you fall into trials. When you do that, you need to know. You need to know something. And when you know it, it changes your ability to count those trials joy. And you need to know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Something happens because of that affliction. Something happens when you encounter trouble. The encountering of it is accidental, but the good that comes from it is purposeful. Let me say it another way. Something that happens to you, something happens to you when you have trouble that will never happen to you when you don't have trouble. When your life is easy, you will not mature and become complete in the same way you will when you have trouble. If you do not cooperate with God in your trouble, you will not get the benefit from it. That's what he says. Let steadfastness have its perfect work. It will work. You see, the affliction produces the steadfastness. And what does the steadfastness accomplish? What is its completed work? Well, it's just that. It is a completeness, a maturity, a perfection of your character and of your soul that will not happen if you do not embrace the trouble you encounter. 
I just want to suggest to you that the trouble that you have encountered in these past six months has been a gift to you. A gift so that God might do the work in your soul that he has intended to do all along. To make you into the image of Jesus so that you reflect the character that God wants you to reflect. That you might be complete and entire, lacking nothing. God's intent is for you to be well-formed and happy and healthy like that butterfly that has struggled because it's the struggle that makes you into the person that God wants you to be. And so I just want to, I just want to ask you, are you welcoming the trouble like you should? See, some, some of the trouble, some of the trouble is here, some of the trouble we experience, some of the trouble we're just afraid is coming, aren't we? We see an election on the horizon and we're like, oh no. And we're worried for our country, we're worried for our future, and we're borrowing trouble, we're borrowing affliction. And I want to suggest to you that as you look ahead and you see trouble coming, that's when you consider it joy. Oh yes, it's going to be harder. Oh yes, it's going to be worse in some ways than what you have now. But it's a gift to you from the Lord to produce in you this completeness and maturity so that you are without deficit. And so I just want you to think about this for a minute. I mean, I want you just to, to meditate, not only on the scripture, but on your trouble. So that you respond to it with faith, trusting that God will do for you what he says he'll do. That it will produce steadfastness, and that steadfastness will produce a maturity and completeness that your soul desires. Now that's the introduction to this book because we are going to encounter trouble. We can expect it and welcome it as a friend instead of be surprised by it and resist it like an enemy. And as I think about that and as I think about how James experienced this, you see, and this whole book is kind of this way, I think. It's not simply a moral lesson to say, why don't you try harder to counter it all joy? Why don't you, you know, just change your attitude and expect good things to come from your suffering? That's not what we're doing at all. I think what James sees as he's writing this is he has in view a resurrected Lord, a Messiah named Jesus that he knew all of his life. And he understands that Jesus not only perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament law, but he perfectly fulfilled the New Testament as well. And so when James, this the brother of Jesus, says, count it all joy when you have trouble, he has Jesus in view. 
Because he knew that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. The most horrific trial that you can imagine, Jesus looked at with joy. Hebrews Chapter 12, verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you and I, we have the same Lord that James had. He is a crucified and risen and exalted Lord who saw through His suffering to its final end. He endured His trouble with joy so that you and I might receive glory with joy. He endured the trouble we deserved so that we might get the glory that He deserved. And the beauty of James chapter 1 here is that Jesus has already done what James, His brother, calls us to do. And so, may God help us to trust in Him to do for us by our suffering, what He promises. That we might develop steadfastness. That we might become perfect and mature. Looking unto Jesus, who did the very same thing in His suffering, so that in His glory, He made it possible for us to enjoy eternal glory as well. Would you join me as we pray? Or Heavenly Father, it's not easy to think about or to talk about trouble. All of us would rather avoid it. Would you enable us to endure this human condition today better than we did yesterday? tomorrow better than we've done today, that we might expect and embrace our trouble, counting it joy, seeing in it something that we were unable to see before, so that you might be able to do a perfect work in us through our suffering. Father, I want to praise you for the work that you did in Jesus and through Jesus because of his suffering. Thank you that we have eternal hope because our Savior suffered and considered it joy. And so, Father, may our faith be completely in him as we go from one struggle to another, as we go from one bad attitude to another. And, Father, may you transform our attitudes so that we count it all joy. And we'll thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.